those of you that have read your Bibles and read them somewhat carefully, I mean, you'll, you, you should notice, we all should notice, maybe you hadn't thought about this, but, you know, when you read a biography of somebody in America, I mean, they tend to start when their baby go all the way through and they fill in all the details, don't they? I mean, you kind of know everything that happened. Whereas when you read the Gospels, I mean, we know very little of Jesus's life, younger life, do we? I mean, a lot of things are left off. And you, you read John, and John says, well, there's a lot of things he did that I could have put in here. Books wouldn't even contain them. But why did he put in what he did put in? It says in John 21 that he did it that you might believe that you might have eternal life, believe on his name. So there's a theological purpose. And that's what's taken place in almost everything that's written in the Bible. It's, it's historically accurate. We know that, right? But it's not written to be history. Because a lot of the kings, they did great things world in a worldly sense, but all it talks about is theologically they were wicked. And the Bible, God could care less about the fact that they built some great city or conquered this nation. So what I want to look at is, um, actually, this is going to kind of be background to something maybe down the road. But uh, if you look at First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and you know, they're placed back-to-back in our English Bible. I don't know how many of you know this, but in the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is the last book. And even Jesus recognized that. I don't want to take the time to get into that. But there's actually a reason for that. And I think it would be better if our, in our Bibles if Chronicles was placed last. For the reason and the purpose and to the people it was written to, it makes better sense. The first and second Kings... That author had a different audience and a different purpose. So the author of Kings, he's writing to the Jews that have gone into exile. 722, 586, Israel's no longer there. They, they have moved on to other lands. Assyria's come in and conquered. Babylon has conquered. They've been carried off. And so it's commonly conceded that Jeremiah likely wrote Kings. And he's writing to these people that are in exile. And why he's writing to them, the purpose of that book, is he's given a defense of God's justice to them. So what he's wanting them to know is he's wanting them to understand you all aren't in these foreign lands. You didn't have your nation destroyed because of bad luck. You didn't lose your nations because the gods of Assyria and Babylon, Marduk, are stronger than Yahweh, which is what a lot of the nations would have said. They looked at their gods as that's how they want to battle. He's saying, no, that's not what happened. And he's saying it's also not because they have these huge, powerful armies that just nobody could stop. He's wanting to let them know that is not why you've been conquered and you're in exile. It's because you violated the covenant of Sinai, is what he's writing to them. And they repeatedly, the Israelites... Clear back in Exodus, when you go and he led them out, they repeatedly told to the Lord. They made vows to the Lord. They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Three times in Exodus, close together. Exodus 19, Exodus 24, verse 3, they said that very same thing. And listen to what they said to the Lord in Exodus 24, verses 7 to 8. It said, and he, Moses, took the book of the covenant... And he read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And they even added this time, and be obedient. And it said, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you concerning these words. So what had Israel done? They had vowed themselves to do what? to be a faithful bride to the Lord. They'd made a covenant commitment, which is what happens when we make marriage vows, isn't it? But they did it in blood, with the blood sprinkled on them. And God said this to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3. He says, have you seen, so they're married to the Lord. Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She's gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. So they brought on themselves. And Jerob, that's what comes out when you read Kings. If you pay attention to what's being written there, they brought on themselves the curses of Deuteronomy 28. 
And so he's letting them know really what were, Isaiah prophesied this, what were Assyria and Babylon? You get spanked with a stick at home? You think that switch that football player used on his boy was harsh? Assyria, he says, is the rod of my indignation. That's why God created that nation to punish his people. And the same with Babylon, rods of correction. And every king of Israel, every king in the north was wicked. There was not one good king. And the very first king they had, his name was Jeroboam. And what's the first thing Jeroboam did? He's all afraid that he's got this northern kingdom. He doesn't want his people going down and worshiping in the southern kingdom because that might strengthen them and he might lose his kingship. Even though God had promised him clearly, I'm giving you this northern kingdom. He didn't have to worry about it. But instead, he set up altars, one in the south and one in the north. Idolatry, that was his sin. Wickedly, it says, departed from the Lord. And not just in worshiping other gods, but departing from obeying his law. Because idolatry involved all kinds of sins that took place. And every king, if you look at, read, that you read that first and second kings, every king after that in northern Israel is compared to Jeroboam. He is the standard. And they'll say, this king, even though he's years after, departed not from the sins of his father, Jeroboam. And Jeremiah's letting them know, hey, this is the reason that you're being judged. And this is the reason you're in this foreign land, because you forsook your covenant relationship with God. But here's the thing, in case you didn't know this. By the way, never again when they came back, you never, you read the prophets that are what called post-Tazilic after they'd come back to the land, they're never rebuked again for idolatry. Because there's one thing, a good spanking will do to a person right it gets them thinking twice before they do it again and that's exactly what happened with israel they're never again rebuked for idolatry they've got other problems but that's never again one of them i think that's interesting but when you look at chronicles even though it just on the surface it appears to be just the same stories just a little elaboration here and there and some of the old time theologians will say well he's just filling in the gaps but that's not what he was doing he had a purpose he's writing to another audience with another purpose. So he, the author of Chronicles, which they believe is Ezra, he's writing to the people that have come back. And he's letting them know his is more of an encouragement. And he's saying, look, you're back in this land. You want to stay in this land? Let me show you the ones that stayed in the land. They were the ones that sought God, that honored the temple, that honored his law, all the kings. And that's why these kings, Hezekiah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Josiah, that was what they did. It said they sought the Lord. They restored temple worship. And the ones that forsook God, he said God forsook them. And they had problems. And he's saying, that's what you all need to see. I'm restoring this temple. I'm restoring you in. If you'll seek me, I'm restoring my presence back here. And he's trying to encourage him through that in that way. So Jeremiah wrote to the Jews living in the foreign lands, and they had 70 years to think about what he told them. 70 years to think about that. They came back, they're like, we don't want to spend another 70 years back there. But Chronicles was written to the Jews that had come back. And when they came back, because of what the prophets had prophesied about the return when God would bring them back, they were expecting great things to happen. They really were. But the problem was they were sorely disappointed because God's timing wasn't their timing. Yeah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, he talks about God will restore and the blessings will be there. And that's what the ones coming back expected to find. Take, for instance, Amos said this, Amos 9:11. he said, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof. And the Lord said, I will raise up his ruins. I'll raise up this city that's just been lying in ruins. And it says, and I will build it as in the days of old. And they came back expecting that, that it was going to be the glory that it was. And the day finally arrived that they could go back. Persia then ruled the world. They conquered Babylon. And Cyrus the king issued a decree in 538. And he said to the Jews, he says, for those of you that want to go back, you go back and God bless you and be with you. I'll even help pay for what you want to do, restoration of this temple. I'll be that generous. And do you know something? A little side note here. He had been prophesied by name 100 years before by the prophet Isaiah. 
Isaiah by name named Cyrus and said, this man will be the one to send you back to this land. Named it before he was even born. Now, whether this is true, I don't know, but Josephus said that when Cyrus, he was shown what Isaiah had prophesied. He was shown Isaiah's writing. And when he saw that, that's when he issued his decree. Whether that happened or not, guess what? It was going to happen because God had said it would. So that, with that decree and these people going back, their expectation is high. They're thinking, man, the exile is almost over. So Zerubbabel, who was the uh, civil leader, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and a handful of Jews return back to Jerusalem, and they're happy because they think they're going back for a restoration to this temple in the city of Jerusalem, and God's glory will return. And they lay a foundation for the temple, this second temple. Well, guess what? Some of these people that had been in exile and come back had been alive when the first temple, Solomon's temple, was up. Now, they're old by now. Been gone for 70 years. And when they see the foundation, the beginning of the building of this second temple, their reaction is telling. Because here's what Ezra wrote about it. He said, yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers of households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they didn't just weep. It said they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. They are totally broke because they knew the glory they had seen and they knew the glory that was in front of them. The ones that probably hadn't seen that old temple, it says they shouted with joy. And it says their noise was so mixed, you couldn't tell the difference. The weeping and the shouting. And they knew something's up, the Samaritans up north. We're going to find out what's going on down there. But just think about one of these older people that comes back. He'd probably be like, my God, I've seen, I've waited 70 years to come back. You know, you promised a restoration a return to the glory, and I left a nice home in Babylon to come back here. I had a nice chariot with waxed, spoked wheels, and I'm coming back for this. And it just broke their heart. So that disappointment, along with the harassment that they were getting from the Samaritans who acted like, oh, we want to worship with you, and all they wanted to do was put a stop to this. And they managed to get a king to sign an order to get it stopped, and the work did stop. For 16 years, that new temple, second temple, had a foundation laid, and that was all that was done. It just sat like that. Zerubbabel and company put down their tools, and they went about doing what? They left off building God's house, and they went about trying to establish their own houses. They built their houses. They got their fields going. They got their family started, and most making the most of life, and it's like, oh, well, that's what we're going to do here. And there sat the promise of God's presence. And at this point, it's an eyesore. An un, unfinished block foundation just sitting there. No glory, no presence. So you have to take what I'm saying here. I don't mean anything by this. But honestly, in a lot of ways, that's the way things to me seem to be today in the church. You know, my wife and I, Lisa, when we came here, came to this church back in 1984, it was 30 years ago, December of 84, Dr. Freeman died that month. We came, moved here, and half this church probably wasn't even born then. Probably wasn't here, wasn't born then 30 years ago. And the one thing, honestly, when we came, I mean, we had heard Brother Hamilton preach, been to the seminars, heard his tapes. I knew what to expect with that. But I'd never, I didn't know anything about Shelbyville Christian Assembly. And I came down here, and I'm telling you, the first thing that did just surprise me and bless me was the worship. It really did. So, you know, Brother Hamilton will talk about the floor shaking. But listen, they weren't shaking because we were all nervous and just, you know, didn't know how to act. I mean, God's presence was manifest in those, in those meetings and at that building to where everybody was excited. And not just excited because, like I said, we were just kind of weird, but excited because the presence of God was there in a tangible way. And I mean almost every meeting. I'd blast, there'd be times, I mean, it was that way for us in Columbus with those meetings, but when we moved down here, it was just as good, if not better. 
And I bask, literally, I don't know how it was for others, but I bask in the glow of that sometimes for days afterwards. Just God's presence would just stay on you about that. And my brother, just to make a point here, my brother Joel came down and visited. We'd been here for a little bit. I don't remember exactly when. He came down. The first time he visited, he wasn't saved. But we were fellowshipping with some people after he had moved and he'd gotten saved and moved here. And somebody asked him, he said, well, what caused you to move here? And my brother said, I, I was sitting there listening, he said, because God's pres- I could sense God's presence in that meeting. God's spirit was truly in our midst then. He really was. And now today, I wouldn't say he's not in our midst at all. But when I compare, honestly, when I compare today with 30 years ago, I, I, honestly, I feel like the old men of Israel. I could weep. It's just not the same. Something's not right, right? And everybody knows it. It's like, I don't know how many of you remember, you young people don't, but the other ones, there's a man named Ross Perot, a billionaire down in Texas, he decided he's going to run for president. And one thing everybody liked about old Mr. Perot was he wasn't afraid to say what he thought. And he used to talk, he said, I'll tell you what this is about the economy. He said, the economy is like your crazy aunt. She's down in the basement and everybody knows it, but nobody wants to talk about it. And honestly, I mean, that's kind of the way it is with this, right? So listen, I'm not up here, and believe me, I'm not. I'm not up here. To, this is not a criticism of this church because I'm a member of this church. I'm part of this church. It's not a criticism. It's not meant as a rebuke at all, and it's not meant as a condemnation. I'm just trying to give an honest assess, assessment because I'm taking a class on revivals right now, American revivals that have taken place in America. And I'll tell you one common thing that these men will say is until you're willing to admit you've got an issue, you'll never look for revival. <laughs> Just kind of go on like nothing's wrong. You've got to say there's some declension here or else there's no hope. And so someone may be saying out there, and I don't have a problem that this couldn't be true, well, I'm as excited as I ever have been about the Lord. And I wouldn't say that couldn't be true of somebody in here, you know, you personally. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our corporate experience. When the temple of God is assembled here in this room, this is where we've chosen to assemble on Wednesdays and Sunday. You know, three, we, we tend to, we are so individualized in America, we, we tend to look at it like all the verses about the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, that, that just is talking about me. You bother to look when Paul talks about the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, three out of the four times, he's not talking to individuals. He's talking in a corporate sense. Our church is the body of, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. So here, I want to make a case for this. So I think small group meetings, Bible studies, and small prayer meetings can have their place. Hear what I'm saying? But they are no substitute for the experience we should have when the entire body is assembled. So there's a popular trend now going on across America, uh, attended a church here when, when we were gone, Lisa and I, and it's these multi-site churches. And the principle behind them is you have one church, but you have this one church in multiple locations. So you got a pastor that sees, he's pastor or this people that meet regularly over here in another part of the city, or it may be somewhere outside the county. And there's a lot of places doing that. One time I, when I first started going down to school down there, they had a panel discussion where they're going to talk about how all this multi-site churches, and they had one guy, his name was Mark Dever, who he was the lone wolf, and he was the chicken with blood on it because I'm telling you literally, I couldn't believe it. They attacked him over his position, but he was against the multi-site church. So here's the arguments, and I'm, I'm just listening to this. I don't know these people at this point. I mean, I kind of know who they all are now. I'm just thinking, okay, I'm, I'd be just curious to hear because I've never read a whole lot about church governments and how they operate and all that and these new things coming up. So I want to just listen to what they had to say. And here are the multi-site arguments. Here's their arguments they make. They say, well, multi-site churches, they'll reach more people than single-site churches, which, by the way, that's what we have here. Multi-site churches tend to spread healthy churches to more diverse communities. What they're saying is they can send teachers out and regulate what's being taught the one pastor over all these different places can regulate all that. Multi-site churches have more volunteers in, in service as a percentage than a single site. 
more people to help. One guy doesn't have to do it all. Multi-site churches baptize more people than a single site. Multi-site churches tend to activate more people into ministry than a single site. So you listen to these arguments and you're thinking, how can I argue with that? Because it's pragmatic. You know what pragmatic means? Results are all that matter. So how do you argue with that? You don't want, you, you'd say something to them like, you mean you don't want more people to be saved? That makes you sound like there's something wrong with you, doesn't it? Are you even a Christian? You don't want more people to be saved? You don't want churches to have sound teaching? You don't want more in ministry? You don't want more people baptized? How would you argue with that? Well, I'll tell you, I'm listening to this, and Mark Dever did. And I'm telling you, they were on his case. But you know how, you know what impressed me was? Mark Dever gave not one pragmatic answer. Every answer he gave was from the Bible. And they got mad because, honestly, I'm thinking, you guys just can't argue with him scripturally. All your answers fall apart when he presents his scriptural presentation. And I can't get into everything he said. But one thing he said was, look, when you look at the church and all the images in the Bible that is presented for the church, you can't get a multi-site image out of that because the church is called a flock, branches of the vine, the temple of God. This is New Testament, the household of God and a body, an organic unit, a body. And his point was, look, if you got somebody over here that meets regularly and over here, how can they say I'm part of my church? How does that work? How does this part of the body, and I'm telling you, I've been to these churches and it's a thing. I'm saying there's saved people there. I'm not bringing up all that, but I'm saying as far as what's right scripturally, how does this person over here that never sees this person over here, but once a year they'll get them all together to justify it all, how does that person ever minister to this person? Maybe you can see what I'm getting at. <laughs> all right. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14, if you would, please. So that, that it, the reason I'm bringing this up is I want us to see that our corporate gathering here, when we're all together, not when we're all scattered doing other things, those have their place and can be fine, right? So hear what I'm saying. But this gathering right here when we're together is where God's spirit should be manifest. And if it's not, then we got a problem. And all the other, in my opinion, is okay, but it's, this is what we need to deal with. All right, so we look at 1 Corinthians 14. Look at the places here where it's talked about the church is edified and when you come together. If you look in, uh, well, you just don't have to look there, but go to 14. But in 1227, it says, now you are the body of Christ, Paul writes, and members in particular. And then down in 14, we'll look at several places here, but look in verse 4. He says, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. But he that prophesies builds up or edifies who? So if we have our church splendid and we're meeting in three different places, how, how is that edifying me at all? Right? You prophesy, you're not building me up. I never hear what you had to say. You go on up into verse 5. And he goes on to say, I would that you all speak in tongues, but rather that you prophesy, for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret why that the church, we are the church. It's the called out assembly, the ecclesia. I need to hear you prophesy so that I can be built up, right? Look down in verse 12. Even so, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel. And Jeff was dealing with this some the last time he spoke. Seek that you may excel. Why? For the building up of the church. And look what he says down in verse 23. Wherefore, what does he say? Part of the church, the whole church come together in one place. Isn't that what it says? Verse 24, but if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or unlearned, he's convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest and so falling down on his face, he will worship God, and he'll do what my brother did. He'll report that God is in you of a truth. But that is all the church together in one place where the presence of God is manifested. Right? Look in verse 26. How is it then, brother? And what does he say? When you what? Come together. Oh, and here's what happens when you come together. Every one of you has a psalm a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, 
at interpretation. Why? So that everyone can be edified. Verse 31, for you all may, may prophesy one may one, one by one, and so that all may learn and all may be comforted. So my point is, I'm trying to say, hey, this is where things should be happening. They should be happening here more than anywhere else because this is when we are all brought together. Right? I'm trying to say it with a smile because I'm really not upset. But that was the gist of Mark Dever's argument. And I thought, you know what? That guy hit the nail on the head. He hit the nail on the head so much that when they offered a class he taught on the church, I was the first one to sign up. I thought, I want to hear what this guy has to say. I don't agree with everything he says, but a whole lot of it I do. He just has some good insight on things. So in my opinion, based on the Bible, based on what we just read, maybe you would agree, maybe you wouldn't. I think the gauge of how a church and assembly, the called out ones, the gathered ones here in Shelbyville are doing is not based on individual accomplishments, how your small group's doing, how missions is doing. Like I said, they have their place. But I think you gauge it on the presence and activity of God in our corporate meetings. The others, I believe, should be an outflow. I'm not saying you shouldn't have them but I'm saying it should be the outflow and not the source, scripturally. So you're sitting out there and you're thinking, all right, I'll give you this. Things don't seem to be going quite like I'd like them to be in here. But we've heard that before. I mean, we keep hearing messages. I mean, John Grievous taught a message when Brother Hampton was traveling back in the old building. Where is the power? It was a good message. I guess, well, we're still asking that, aren't we? I mean, it was such a good message that the church stood up and clapped. Well, why should we still be asking that? That was about 30 years ago, or there's about, thereabouts. Because, you know, I'll tell you one thing the way I am. I don't like it when somebody wants to bring up a problem, and then all they want to do is keep talking about it or wallowing in it. I'm like, that's fine. I hear your problem, but let's see if we can find a solution to it. And I'm, I believe that's the way God is. I believe God is a God of solutions. He really is. You know, the hardest prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, I mean, they prophesied some hard things. They prophesied, don't even pray for these people. But their, their prophecies and their books are still filled with hope. At the end, they are. And back to Israel's situation. So here we are in Jerusalem, the temple foundations in shambles. Israel's temple in the, in the presence of God are, they're threatened to be extinct the way things are, right? And the people don't seem bothered about it. That's the problem. They're just going about establishing their families, working their jobs, raising their families. And so God says, I've got a solution. Y'all don't even know you got a problem, but I've got a solution for the problem you have. And so what does he do? He raises up two prophets out of their midst, Haggai and Zechariah. And in his grace and love, he sends these two men, raises up these two men to speak to these people because he's going to get them back on track. And I believe he'll do the same for us. So if you would turn to, I'm finally getting to my text. It takes a while, doesn't it? Haggai chapter one. Now I'm telling you, Haggai is one of those, it's the clean pages Brother Hamilton always talks about. Best way to find it is go back and get to Malachi and then you'll find Zechariah who we'll be coming to in a little bit. And then right before Mr. Zechariah is Haggai. It's a short two-chapter book. But I think there's some words in here for us to ponder. So we'll read Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Well, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? 
Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. And he says it again, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then he says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did just blow on it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste. And you run every man into his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground brings forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. Well, we're going to stop right there for right now. And back in verse 2, what do the people say if you look back in verse 2? They're saying, it's just, this just isn't the right time to build the house of the Lord. time hasn't come. Things just weren't working out when we got started before. Too many hassles when we tried. And right now, I've got a family. I got, I got work. I got things to do. And God says, not time? I issued a decree through Cyrus. Had him named 100 years before he was born. Not time? You say it's not time, but I guess it's time for you to dwell in your paneled houses your finished houses, you made sure you got those done, is what he tells them. While my house, he says, it lies in ruins. He says, you sought first your fiefdom and happiness and not my kingdom and righteousness, is what he accuses them of. So in verse 5 to 7, we read, he says, think about, consider. The, the Hebrew says, set your heart upon the way, the road you're traveling. He says, look at where you're going. And see where you're going to end up on that road you're headed down. My temple, my presence isn't in your life. And you think all this building, and all, it's, where's it getting you is what he's telling them. You're busy working, drinking, eating, clothing yourself. But where is it getting you, he asked them. And he tells them, what do you have to show for all your worldly concern at the end of the day? What's the purpose of your life? Is it to have a nice job, a nice family, job security? Or my temple, he would have asked him. And I like this down in verse 8, because the way this comes across, God has a way of speaking to people sometimes. He'll kill you with his kindness. Because look how he says this to him. I mean, he makes his point, I think, pretty clear there in verses 5 through 7. But look how it's like a father talking to a son. He says, go up into the mountain and bring the wood. And build the house. Just get back to what you're doing. And what does he say? I'm going to hold it over your head, what you've been doing for the last 16 years. No, what does he say? He says, I'll take pleasure in it. I'll bring you right back to where I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll love on you is what he's telling them. And he also says, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. But he goes on to say, look, gentlemen and women, men were doing most of the building. He said, if you're not going to do that, I'll tell you what had happened. What's going to happen is that everything you try to do in this world, I'm just going to blow on it, and it will fall apart. Come to nothing, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, when it keeps referring to that, he's saying, I am the sovereign God in control of everything that happens. Who do we think we are that we're not going to obey him? That's, that's the, it's easy to read over something like Lord of hosts, just whatever. Well, that's saying something to the Jews hearing that. So we have to ask ourselves at this point, what has been the priority of our lives? What is the priority of our lives today? Maybe it's changed. And we have to do what God asks. We have to consider in our heart, ponder our paths, where we're going right now. Give an eva honest evaluation of where you're going. So what place does God's temple have in our lives, in our thinking? And someone could say, well, honestly, if I'm honest, I attend every meeting and all my friends are there at church. But honestly, my main priority is my job and my family, if I'm honest. 
That really is my main priority. And what's the number one thing that suffers? And I'd say time for prayer. Prayer suffers. That's, that's just a known fact, and especially prayer for the church. But listen, what is God saying his priority is to these people? It's not that he doesn't care about their families and that they have income, is it? Is it? He's saying his priority is his temple. And for us today, not a building. We are the temple now, right? And we consist of each other. So we're not a building of stone that was like in the Old Testament. We, as Brother Hamilton's drawn many times up there, guess what? We are the stones. And without us being put together and God being a habitation of us, what do we have? I'm telling you, we have nothing. Literally nothing. I'm, I'm not exaggerating to say that. So turn to Ephesians 2. If, now, let's put something in Haggai or you'll never find it again. Put something in there, pencil. I'm not turning to a lot of verses tonight, but I do want us to see this. Because, I, like I said earlier, we tend to think of ourselves, all these verses about the Holy Spirit and we're the temple, that that's just as us individually. We don't understand that God views this church as a temple. And it can't be written any clearer than it is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, begin in verse 18, Paul writes, For through him, Jesus... We both have access, Jews and Gentiles, by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and there it is, of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed, that means it's joined together, groweth as he fits us together grows us together into what we are the holy temple of the lord as we're being fit together here can you see that not talking about individuals he's talking about us being fit together and it's 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 an ongoing process like they were building the temple back then it says we grow unto the temple of the lord in whom verse 22 ye and it's emphatic Ye, meaning he's like he's pointing to you all are builded together. And what's the purpose? For inhabitation, a dwelling of God. How? Through the Spirit. That's what we should be experiencing here. We've, we have experienced it here. We have. And I can honestly say for myself, and I'm sure others can say it, maybe all can say it, there's nothing to compare to experiencing the manifest presence of God in a meeting, in the worship, in the word. You know, Catherine Booth used to say the Salvation Army, when they started off, they had some anointed preachers. And she would say, give me that word that burns like on the road to Emmaus. And only the Holy Spirit can do that, right? And man, I've experienced that here. Haven't you? The word that burns and only the Holy Spirit's doing that when his presence is here. The gifts. We've had prophecy, tongues and interpretation, but none of that now. Let's be honest. In the fellowship, I mean, when I've been in a meeting with, where God's presence is there through the worship and through the word, it doesn't stop there, does it? Maybe it does. It doesn't for me because it seems like his presence stays on our fellowship. It's a lot easier to get along with people when that's going on. Because it's God's presence that makes that fellowship. And nothing, I'm telling you, nothing in my life I've experienced compares to that. Not seeing the Grand Canyon. I've seen the Grand Canyon. Nothing compares to that. Not Israel. Not Wadi, Kentucky. Nothing compares to having the Spirit manifested in a meeting in all the ways that he does. Right? Some of the best services we've had in this church were threefold communions, weren't they? And I'll tell you, I don't know how it was for... And some people don't know what a threefold communion is. You have a foot washing, the Lord's Supper, and we all have share our food together. Threefold communion. And on one part of the threefold communion, I'm going to tell you, I always hated. So if we have one, don't be thinking anything about me. But I could never stand the foot washing. I mean, if there was any way I could find a way to get away, I would have. My flesh didn't like it. But Brother Hamilton would teach on that. And he'd say, hey, if you're part of this body, what, and that settled it for me right there because I'm, I'm, I'm part of this body. But I'll say, once I got past that part of it in my shyness, you know, 
I experience God's presence more at those foot washings, I think, than almost anything. Kneel in that humiliating experience in front of some gnarly foot. But seriously, I mean, how many of you remember those meetings we had? I'm telling you, that's the way it was for me. Nothing like it. So back to our chapter here, back and pick it up in 12. What was their response? What does it say there in the beginning? When they heard that word, Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant, they did what? It said they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And so what does that mean? That means they put off making their personal lives the number one priority. And they made the kingdom of God and building his temple, his church, the number one thing in their life. And there was a fear in their heart, it says at the end of that verse 12. And why is that? Remember, they knew what happened when God had threatened Israel before he kept telling them in Jerusalem. He says, look, if you all don't repent, I am going to destroy this place. And they wouldn't believe him because they never repented. And guess what? Eventually, the threat came to pass. These people are hearing this word, and they're realizing, hey, we've seen what happened. We're not that stupid. We're going to do what he said. We're back, right back to building. Let's go get the wood. But I like this in verse 13. Look at the encouragement they get. And it's, it, even though they may be just obeying out of fear of the Lord, nothing wrong with that, right? But look what happens. God turns Haggai back in verse 13, sends him back to give a word to these people. And what's his word of encouragement? He's telling them, I am with you. Oh, man. Pass the mortar. Let me carry the heavy blocks if I know God's with me, right? That had to be a great encouragement to him. And then he goes on in verse 14. So because of their obedience, God begins to work in the people again. And it said, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He's got life back in him to serve the Lord, right? But he had to take that step of obedience. Stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtai, Tiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit also of Joshua. And it didn't stop there. The spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So do we really have to question, does God desire to be in the midst of our assembly here, in the midst of our meeting? No, he doesn't. But like them, we need to determine we're going to obey the Lord and get our priorities straight. And like I said earlier, I think the biggest commitment that's going to be is in the area of prayer, heartfelt prayer. Not just this perfunctory prayer, that's done in the morning, in the evening, when you get up and right before you go to bed, but prayer that is spent before the Lord, laboring before the Lord on behalf of others here, our pastor, pray for God to restore his presence in our midst, if it means anything to you. Prayer for us to have a renewed commitment to do his will. So down, we go back in the chapter 2 here of Haggai, verses 1 to 9. And it says, in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And he says, So what do you, look, what do you think about what you're seeing now? Is it not in your eyes in con comparison as of nothing, he's saying, I know when you see what you're seeing now, this is nothing compared to what it was. Yet, he says in verse 4, Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saying the Lord of hosts. And look what he says in verse 9. The glory of this latter house 
shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. You would think, how could that be? This place looks nothing like the other one. But he's saying his glory is what makes it. He's saying, don't be discouraged by what you see. Go and work. I will be with you, and the glory can be greater than it was. And I'd say that's the word for us. So in 30 years as a spirit-filled believer, over 30 years, I got filled with the spirit and baptized in 81, I've experienced the presence of the Lord in many remarkable ways and at many times. But when I read the book of Acts, I feel like I've experienced nothing. So I not only would like to see the return of God's presence in a tangible way as in the past, but in a way that resembles the full power of what we see in the New Testament. And believe me, that's nothing we're going to work up in ourselves. But I would love to see the love and unity that we see in Acts chapter 4. The power of an anointed message that brings the conversion of 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2. The shaking of a building during a prayer meeting that we see in Acts chapter 4. And how about the fear of God and the presence of his holiness in judgment in Acts chapter 5. And I would say, why can't it be said of our church, which was said of the church in Corinth, that you come behind in no gift? Is there a reason why that couldn't be said of us? Waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I know that all preaches good. Actually, didn't preach that good. I didn't get a whole lot of response. But it's never materialized as a reality for us, right? We've heard those kind of messages before. And life goes on. Well, let me ask you tonight. So we just want to say this is just another message, and life just goes on. We've heard another one of these, we need the da-da-da-da-da. I'm saying, you can think that if you want, but life doesn't just go on. Because two months after Haggai came to encourage those people in their building, promised them God would be with them, restore his presence, two months later, God sends another prophet, Mr. Zechariah. And Zechariah had a message for the people. Look in chapter 1 of Zechariah's next book, chapter 1, and we'll just look at the first six verses for now. It says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came to the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn you unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil way and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. And he's saying, Your fathers, where are they now? They wouldn't hear, they wouldn't hearken, and they don't exist. And neither does that temple. And the prophets, do they live forever? He says, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? These words they said we can just ignore and life moves on. He said those words of judgment finally took hold, caught up, and came down on them, is what he's telling them. And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. So don't be like your fathers. They took the temple for granted. We can't take this church for granted and think, well, it's just going to, life just moves on. Things are the way they are. And that's what they did, they did then, refused to change, and one day the hammer fell, and guess what? They didn't have a temple anymore. They didn't have anywhere to worship the Lord anymore. They didn't have God's presence at all. So we need to learn from Israel. And when you don't seek the Lord first, what happened to them? They lost God's presence and the temple. And here's why I say we need to pay attention. Read the book of Revelation. New Testament. You're saying it's all Old Testament you're talking about? No, let's talk about the New Testament for a minute. Book of Revelations of the seven churches in Revelation, five out of the seven churches are told you repent or else. Five out of seven. All the apostles aren't even dead yet, and God's having to say that to them. You'll lose your candlestick, he tells them. And what is the candlestick? We're told that. It represents the churches. In Ephesus, 
Listen, they weren't in gross sin. They had a lot of good things they were doing. Their doctrine was pure, and he said, I know your works. And what is the one thing he gets on them about? What had they done? Left their first love, right? Well, what's that? Why should their candlestick be removed over that? This is what the Lord said to him. I have somewhat against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Don't just talk about it. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That's corporately as well as individually, isn't it? God has to speak to all of our hearts. It's not just a person. And so seeking God, it's not just a one-time event. It's not like, oh, I wondered where he was. I found him and I've done that and it's over with. That's not what seeking first the kingdom or seeking God or all through the book of Chronicles we talked about earlier. When it talks about seeking God, it's not a one-time event. Seeking God is a permanent thing where you have made a commitment of your heart that God is your all. And it involves intensity, the opposite of forsaking him, wanting nothing to do with him. It's Levi back there with his bride. That's seeking. They were seeking and they're still seeking. They're all to each other. It's not a one-time thing. I'm saved and now I don't have to seek God like I did at the beginning. You better be. We all better be. I better be. Right? So let's close. I don't wear you all out too much. I want to read one more chapter from Zechariah, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, And the angel that talked with me came again and walked, waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, well, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, mm, the governor again, the leader of the building of the temple, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace under it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, the temple. His hands also shall finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with these, those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And then said he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, I know ultimately, who's the, who's the builder of our temple here? I mean, Jesus is the foundation of our church, is he not? We know that, right? The Father is the builder. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings it to completion. It's the triune God who's ultimately responsible for everything that happens here, right? Us being the temple of the God. But just as Zerubbabel was over the building of the temple of God, he has set pastors over churches to oversee the building of this holy temple. And I believe there's a word of encouragement for a pastor in this. Because he's asking him here in verse 6, he's saying, Zerubbabel, is this work over your head? And I'm sure it seemed like it was to him with all the difficulties coming his way. 
And he says, hey, listen, this is how it works, Mr. Zerubbabel. It's not by might, not by power, but how are things going to be done with the building of this temple? By my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And he asked him, he says, so what is this? What's the greatest obstacle? What is the mountain that's keeping you from completing this task, Zerubbabel? What's your greatest obstacle? Is it a lack of interest? Infighting and troublemakers? Sin in the camp, fornication, marriage problems, on and on. And he tells him, he says, well, that, un, that seemingly unmovable mountain of difficulty in building God's temple, he said, it will become a plane. He's telling him, I'll take that problem out of your way. And he says, one day, the headstone of this temple you've been working on that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, right? He says, one day, that headstone will go up. And it will go up in the midst of what? Shouts of grace. And what are the shouts of grace? Because no man is going to take credit for anything of that, right? It's all by the grace of God that we move on. It'll be by the grace of God if we experience his presence like we should have again. All glory will go to him. Believe me. That's the way it'll work. In verse 9, he, says, he tells him, he says, look, the hands, your hands, Zerubbabel, that laid this foundation will be the hands that will finish it. Oh, look, I, I mean, I hate to sound like a brown nose, and he's sitting right there. I'm sorry, okay, because I, I would avoid this if I could. But we have our Zerubbabel right here. He's preached thousands of sermons faithfully to us, right, over 30 years in this church. He laid the foundation of this church. And guess what? Many times we are the mountain that stands in front of him. He's told us that. And he thinks sometimes, what do I do? What do I do with this mountain? So how does the Bible say we're to respond to pastors that are set over us? Doesn't it say in Timothy, it does? Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Double honor. I think financially, and I, I don't think you got financial complaints, do you, by the church? Financially, I'd say we probably take care of our pastor from what I understand. But what about the respect? Well, let me put it, put it this way. So I'm not a pastor at prison. I'm just a volunteer chaplain, all right? But Jeff and I, we have a regular meeting every Tuesday night. And I had several. We have a group, a core group that they don't go. Some of them don't go to any other meetings but ours for whatever but I've had guys come up and tell me that want some that come faithfully, and they say that this is my church. I don't have another. They don't call me their pastor because I won't let them. But I can say the greatest honor that I have preaching there when I do preach there is not the ones that come up and tell me how great they thought my message was. That really isn't because they're the same ones a week later that will tell you. They leave and they criticize you, tell you how bad you were, Right? But the ones that, and this has happened sometimes, is when I hear I preach the message and put time in it and somebody comes and tells me privately, look, what you said was just what I needed. It really helped me through that week. And that makes it like, I feel like it's, it's worth my time, right? And, and in a sense, it honors me. I don't think, take credit for it, right? I know it's God. I'm not saying it that way. But I think the greatest honor we can give our pastor is to help him build this temple by obeying what he says, isn't it? Take seriously what he says. And that's the way also that we honor God. So he preaches a message on mercy. We should be showing mercy. Preaches a message on faith. It talks about getting the word and all that he says. And we think, well, we've heard that. Well, maybe you've heard it before, but then what happens when you're in a trial? I think, I know it. I've seen him. He's greatly encouraged. And it excites him to see somebody who really trusts the Lord and sees supernatural healing take place or a financial thing. Or if he preaches on a message on holiness where that has affected a person. But isn't that the way it should be? And the second thing we need to see there at the end of that in verses 11 to 14 Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, they are the two olive branches. It says that emptied oil into the lampstand. So the supply of oil they're giving is what lights the lampstand, gives light to the temple. So that oil is flowing through them, the leaders, to give light to the temple. 
And oil in the Bible always represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the presence of the Holy Spirit is flowing from Zerubbabel and Joshua to give power to complete the building of this temple. And so what do we need in this church? We need our Zerubbabel to have the anointing, don't we? And that supply of oil flowing through him. And how do you think that happens? I mean, he can pray himself. I'm sure he does. I mean, I pray before I go into prison, but I'm going to tell you, my family, every week, they would tell me before I go and when I get home, first thing, how did things go? I was praying for you. You don't know how much that means to me. It really does. You ask him how much it would mean to him to know our church is fervently praying for his ministry here, not just in the preaching, but everything he has to deal with as a pastor. And why, if you read the Apostle Paul, he's constantly asking, this is Paul. He's begging for people to pray for him. God had, God had knocked him off a horse and said, this is the ministry I'm giving you, and yet he is begging for the prayers of the people. So one time, I'm getting ready to close here, a man asked Charles Spurgeon, he said, what's the secret to your great success as a preacher? Because it wasn't just that he was a gifted orator, which he was. I mean, thousands were truly converted under his ministry. And the healings took place in his ministry. And he took that man to a large basement that was underneath where he preached. Hundreds are there praying for him. He said, that's my success right there. So I want to read something to you to close here. There's a man named Aaron Murray. And he's done a lot of research on people like Spurgeon. I've got a book of his I'm reading on revivals. It's really good. But I, was started to, I started to write my summary and my conclusion, and I ran across this in this book on Spurgeon. I thought, this says everything I've said tonight better than I could say it if I tried to sum it up myself. So listen to this. He's talking about Spurgeon. He says, Spurgeon came to London conscious that God had been hiding his face from his people. His knowledge of the Bible and of church history convinced him that compared with what the church had a warrant to expect, the Spirit of God was in great measure withdrawn. And if God continued to withhold his face, he declared to his people, nothing could be done to extend his kingdom. It is not your knowledge, nor your talent, nor your zeal, he would say, that can perform God's work. And Spurgeon said this, yet brethren, this can be done. We will cry to the Lord until he reveals his face again. All we want is the Spirit of God. Dear Christian friends, go home and pray for it. Give yourselves no rest till God reveals himself. Do not tarry where you are. Do not be content to go on in your everlasting jog trot as you have done. Do not be content with the mere round of formalities. Awake, O Zion. Awake, awake, awake. Those are the words Spurgeon spoke to his people. As Murray goes on to write, before many months had passed, it was manifest that the congregation at New Park Street, this is Spurgeon's church, was awakening. And as travail and prayer became the characteristic of the church. Travail and prayer became the characteristic of the church. One common burden spread from pastor to people. And this is what Spurgeon said. The Lord send a blessing. He must send it. Our hearts will break if he does not. Murray wrote, what change took place in the prayer meetings? Now, instead of old, dull prayers, Spurgeon said, every man seemed like a crusader besieging the new Jerusalem. Each one appeared determined to storm the celestial city by the might of intercession. And soon the blessing came upon us in such abundance that we had not room to receive it. To the end of his life, Spurgeon pointed back to the revival at Park Street as one sure evidence that God answers prayer. And he would often remind his congregation of those early days. Spurgeon said, what prayer meetings we have had. Shall we ever forget Park Street? Those prayer meetings when I felt compelled to let you go without a word from my lips because the Spirit of God was so awfully present that we felt bowed to the dust. 
And what listening there was at Park Street where we scarcely had air enough to breathe, the Holy Spirit came down like showers which saturate the soil till the clods are ready for the breaking. You don't think we can have that here? I say, I know we can. But listen to this final paragraph here. Some of the most solemn warnings Spurgeon ever gave his congregation were of the danger of their ceasing to be dependent upon God in prayer. And listen to what he tells his people, and we need to keep this in mind for our pastor. May God help me, he said, if you cease to pray for me. That's what he told his congregation, Charles Spurgeon. May God help me if you cease to pray for me. He went on to say this. Let me know when you intend to cease your prayers, and I will cry, Oh, my God, give me this day my tomb and let me slumber in the dust. So the last thing I want to say is I'm convinced that if we are going to realize the presence of God's spirits, like I believe we all desire, it was going to be the result of fervent prayer and total dependence on the Holy Spirit and us getting our priorities right, just like it was in Haggai. God hasn't changed. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us here and the hope you've given us and what we can learn from your people, Israel, and and the things they did, the encouragement they received from the prophets. Lord, I just ask that this will be an encouragement for all of us here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly to put our priorities in where they should be, that this church should be number one in our life because it is your temple. And I just ask you to impress that on our hearts, Lord. We just thank you for this time together. And we just do that in Jesus' name. Amen.